Welcome to Season 3 of Come Follow Me Deep Dive, Doctrine and Covenants Edition. This podcast takes a section-by-section approach to the scriptures that are assigned to the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and you can visit my website, barryhillam.com, to make contact and find new content. I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks from many reliable sources, a short flyover summary of the Doctrine and Covenants section in question, followed by a complete verse-by-verse reading of the text that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture, trusted scholars, and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 13, The Restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. The words that we'll read in this section were given on May 15th of 1829, and they are tied to an incident that took place near Harmony, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Susquehanna River. We'll learn a great deal more about the background information incident to this section, both in this reading and in the next reading, which will cover Joseph Smith history, verses 66 through 75. This section was directed to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery then, as we will come to discover as we learn these historical details. But rather than it being a revelation that is given through Joseph Smith Jr., section 13 contains the words of John the Baptist. So before we move into a reading of the section heading, I'd like to pause for just a moment and to consider the import and the impact of Joseph and Oliver seeing John the Baptist. Yes, the John the Baptist. I want to discuss something for just a moment that might seem tangentially related to this issue, but I think it might provide a tie-in or some context for this phenomenal event of John the Baptist's visit to Joseph and Oliver. So with that in mind, I'd like for us to consider our Christianity for just a moment as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are often not uh, considered Christian in a taxonomical sense by other faith traditions and sects that profess a belief in Jesus Christ. And uh, this can sometimes be a point of defensiveness for us as members of the Church. In those moments, we are quick to point out that we are indeed Christian, and we talk of Christ and we preach of Christ. We write according to our prophecies and teach our children to what source they may look for their salvation, as Nephi said. But the fact is that it all depends upon the definition of Christian that is being called upon in such a conversation. Yes, we are Christian as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but that is by our own definition. It's not in a taxonomical sense so much. No one who reads our scripture or attends our meetings can credibly dispute our whole-souled worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our concept of Christianity is that we would confess him in all things, that we would profess a belief in Christ, and that, again, we would worship Jesus Christ with our whole souls. That, indeed, is what we do in this church. Another level, if I may put it that way, to this brand of Christianity is that not only would we profess Christ and confess Christ and worship him, 
but we also would link ourselves to him through covenant. We would take his yoke upon us. And in this way, we learn of him, as he says in Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, verse 23, learn of me, listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit. So we have our own definition of what it means to be Christian, and it's a very complete concept and definition of Christianity. However, it is also true that we do not descend or evolve from the same tradition as our Catholic and Protestant friends. We do not claim a tie to either of those two main branches from the Christian tree, if I can put it that way. It's interesting, by the way, to think of those branches in Zenus's terms, his olive tree allegory. Those branches are separated from the covenant trunk. So instead, we claim authority and identity as Christians from an entirely different place. If someone asks us, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how do you derive your priesthood authority? And when one asks us such a question, they might expect to hear an answer that has to do with our derivation from, again, Catholicism or Protestantism. Our answer in this instance can come as quite a surprise to someone who asks such a question, because we might reply, well, we derive our priesthood authority directly from John the Baptist, who personally visited Joseph Smith and conferred it upon him. And then we can say, as if that is not audacious enough, Peter, James, and John, yes, the very Peter, James, and John of the New Testament, visited Joseph Smith shortly after his encounter with John the Baptist. I mean, these are fantastical things to say. And they conferred the higher priesthood, or Melchizedek priesthood, upon him. So just consider for a moment how incredible this claim is. It leaves us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ really with room for no other option than this, to embrace a brand of Christianity that is not rooted in any tie into Catholicism, Instead, it is actually rooted in miraculous and what would otherwise be considered unbelievable occurrences. So we don't just believe in such miracles or occurrences, but in fact, we rely upon them. Uh, in fact, our credibility crumbles if Joseph Smith was not visited by angels such as Moroni and John the Baptist. We further rely upon the miracle of ongoing revelation, and as I intimated earlier, we rely upon the miracle of priesthood-mediated covenant access to the very same Jesus that walked in Galilee and Judea, the same resurrected Lord who descended from the heavens and ministered to the Nephites. So this is the Christianity that is found in the restored church of Jesus Christ. We are indeed Christian, even if it is by our own definition. And this visit by John the Baptist and the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood is one of our foundational miracles. Well, let's return now to section 13 and read the section heading. It says, An extract from Joseph Smith's history recounting the ordination of the prophet and Oliver Cowdery to the Aaronic Priesthood near Harmony, Pennsylvania, in May 15th of 1829. The ordination was done by the hands of an angel who announced himself as John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament. The angel explained that he was acting under the direction of Peter, James, and John, the ancient apostles, who held the keys of the higher priesthood, which was called the priesthood of Melchizedek, 
The promise was given to Joseph and Oliver that in due time this higher priesthood would be conferred upon them. So when we read Joseph Smith history, uh, verses 66 through 75, we'll have occasion to come back to that and read some commentary from the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual that discusses the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. Susan Black has written the following with respect to this visit from John the Baptist to Joseph and Oliver. Of receiving the Aaronic priesthood from John the Baptist, Joseph wrote, What joy, what wonder, what amazement! While the world were racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty as a general mass, our eyes beheld and our ears heard. As in the blaze of day, yes, more, above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliancy over the face of nature, then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. "'Twas the voice of an angel from glory. "'Twas a message from the Most High. "'And as we heard, we rejoiced, "'while his love enkindled upon our souls "'and we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. "'Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. "'Uncertainty had fled. "'Doubt had sunk no more to rise, "'while fiction and deception had fled forever. "'Of this sacred manifestation, "'Oliver Cowdery wrote, quote, "'On a sudden, as from the midst from eternity, "'the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us,' while the veil was parted and the angel of God came down clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked-for message and the keys of the gospel of repentance. Then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. T'was the voice of an angel from glory. T'was a message from the Most High. I shall not attempt to paint to you the feelings of this heart, nor the majestic beauty and glory which surrounded us on this occasion. But you will believe me when I say that earth, nor men, with the eloquence of time, cannot begin to clothe language in as interesting and sublime a manner as this holy personage. That's a beautiful and compelling way that Oliver Cowdery has of describing the way in which this experience transcended any descriptive language. We run up against that in Joseph Smith history time and time again. Well, it's obvious here that the cast of characters for Section 13 is Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and John the Baptist, but but I still mention that here to follow our, our format. And let me do this very quickly, which is to read the entry from the Bible Dictionary on John the Baptist. Let's get to know him a little bit more and to consider his life and ministry uh, both in the time in which he lived and his ministry uh, upon Joseph Smith. This entry says, John the Baptist, son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, being of priestly descent through both parents. This lineage was essential since John was the embodiment of the law of Moses, designed to prepare the way for the Messiah and make ready a people to receive him. He was the outstanding bearer of the Aaronic priesthood in all history, and was entrusted with its most noble mission. His forthcoming birth and the nature of his ministry were announced to John's father by the angel Gabriel. That can be found in Luke chapter 1, verses 5-25. through 25. He was a child of promise, with prophecies of his mission, having been given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He grew up in the desert until the time arrived for his ministry to prepare the way for the Savior. The sign of the dove, as an emblem for the Holy Ghost, was a pre-appointed signal by which John knew he was to recognize that he had baptized the Son of God. 
At the time of the baptism of Jesus, John saw the sign and heard the voice of the Father bearing record that Jesus was the beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. Uh, We read of that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He had preached and baptized for several months before he baptized the Savior and continued to do so afterwards for several months. At least two of those who were later to become members of the Twelve, John and Andrew, were disciples of John before they met Jesus. It is probable that others of the Twelve were also tutored by him. He watched, without feelings of jealousy, the waning of his own influence and the growth of the influence of Jesus. He was shut up in prison by order of Herod for criticizing Herod's unlawful marriage of Herodias. While in prison, John sent two of his disciples to inquire of Jesus to reassure their faith. Many have thought this event reflected a lack of confidence in John's own mind. However, Jesus took the occasion to bear testimony of the great work John had done, emphasizing that he was unwavering and true. Jesus also pointed out that John had fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, And that, by the way, is the passage that says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Jesus praised John as a prophet, saying there is none who is greater. This greatness consisted of his unique privileges and the quality of his work. He alone was entrusted with the mission of preparing the way and baptizing the Savior of the world. He did no miracle, but magnificently fulfilled his assignment in bearing testimony of Jesus Christ. And that phrase, he did no miracle, is found in John chapter 10, verse 41. Jesus characterized John as a burning and a shining light in John chapter 5, verse 35. After nearly a year in prison, John was beheaded at the instigation of Herodias. A vigorous preacher, John taught many principles and doctrines of the gospel and filled his mission in every particular. Latter-day Revelation confirms the biblical account and also makes known additional events in the ministry of John. We learn that he was ordained by an angel when he was eight days of age to overthrow the kingdom of the Jews and to prepare a people for the Lord. We learn also that he was baptized while yet in his childhood, and it's Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verses 27 through 28 that tell us that. On May 15th of 1829, this same John came to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery near Harmony, Pennsylvania, and ordained these men to the priesthood of Aaron. Thus, his ministry has operated in three dispensations. He was the last of the prophets under the law of Moses, he was the first of the New Testament prophets, and he brought the Aaronic priesthood to the dispensation of the fullness of times. So, I think it's nice for a few moments to consider John the Baptist. A favorite statement of mine by John the Baptist is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, when he says to the Pharisees, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. There are other examples of his boldness and his plain speak in this passage in Matthew chapter 3, but I think that's my favorite. Let's go now to Stephen C. Harper's origin of Doctrine and Covenants section 13. He writes, The Book of Mormon tells of the resurrected Savior's ministry among the Nephites, during which he said to Nephi and then others, I give unto you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. That's 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 21. To settle disputations that had risen, the Savior taught Nephi and others how to perform the ordinance, the words to say, and the requirements of those who could be worthily immersed, 
And uh, that happens after that verse in uh, 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 22 through 30. And as Joseph read those words to Oliver in May of 1829, it was as if the Savior were teaching them too. They quickly realized, so Harper here is suggesting that that specific passage in 3 Nephi was, was the trigger for Joseph to approach the Lord and to receive this visit from John the Baptist. They quickly realized that no one on earth in 1829 had the Lord's permission and power to baptize. They went into the woods and prayed fervently to inquire of the Lord respecting baptism for the remission of sins that they found mentioned in the translation of the plates. Their ordination is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 13. Here is the introduction and timeline from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual that covers these circumstances with a broader brush, so we'll talk about uh, some other Doctrine and Covenants sections that were received around the same time. It says, During the work of translating the Book of Mormon in April of 1829, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had a difference of opinion about whether the Apostle John had died or whether he continued to live on the earth. Now, this is a different John, and of course this has to do with section 7, but I think I'll read it anyway. The prophet Joseph Smith inquired of the Lord with the Urim and Thummim and received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 7. The revelation is a translated version of the record made on parchment by John and teaches that the Lord granted to John his desire to live and bring souls to Jesus Christ until the second coming. While translating 3 Nephi in the Book of Mormon plates, Joseph and Oliver learned about the authority to baptize for the remission of sins. On May 15th of 1829, they retired to the woods near Joseph Smith's farm in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and prayed about this authority. In response to their prayer, John the Baptist appeared as a resurrected personage and conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood. The words spoken by John the Baptist are contained in Doctrine and Covenants section 13. Here are several timeline entries that place section 13 among other events during this time. In April of 1829, Joseph and Oliver are translating the Golden Plates, and uh, section 7 was received around that time, as well as the sections to uh, Oliver Cowdery that we've read from before. On May 15th of 1829, John the Baptist restored the Aaronic Priesthood. Uh, in May through June of 1829, Peter, James, and John, so somewhere in that period, appeared to Joseph and restored the Melchizedek Priesthood. In June of 1829, th the three witnesses were shown the Golden Plates, and in June of 1829, Doctrine and Covenants section 18 was received as well. So this also comes from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual uh, under the heading Additional Historical Background for section 13. It says the miraculous work of translating the Book of Mormon plates progressed rapidly in April and May of 1829. Oliver Cowdery described his feelings about the process. Quote, These were days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven awakened the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued uninterrupted to write from his mouth as he, Joseph Smith, translated with the Urim and Thummim. In May, the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were translating the account given of the Savior's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this, the American continent. We will read that in verse 71 of Joseph Smith's history. That account included 3 Nephi, chapters 9-28, through 28, in which baptism by proper authority is mentioned several times. So, in our earlier reading of Harper's origin story, he suggested that this uh, was triggered specifically from 3 Nephi chapter 11. But here the Institute Manual is suggesting that there could have been several 
possible triggers, to use that word again, that would have sent Joseph back to the woods to pray. Joseph and Oliver desired to know more and went into the woods to ask the Lord in prayer for direction. The prophet recorded, While we were thus employed, uh, praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, and having laid his hands upon us, he ordained us. The angelic messenger was John the Baptist, now a glorified resurrected being, and he instructed Joseph and Oliver to baptize each other. Accordingly, they went to the nearby Susquehanna River, where Joseph baptized Oliver, and then Oliver baptized Joseph. After being baptized, they ordained each other to the Aaronic priesthood, as instructed by John the Baptist. And uh, we'll read of that very specifically in verses 70 through 72 in Joseph Smith history. John the Baptist also told Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery that he was acting under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. He explained that in due time, Joseph and Oliver would also receive the Melchizedek priesthood. Historical evidence suggests that Peter, James, and John appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery before June 1st of 1829 and conferred the Melchizedek priesthood upon them. Here now is Robinson and Garrett's background to section 13. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, it was with the intention that they should become a Zion people, enjoying the blessings of the fullness of the gospel and of the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. When Israel sinned in the wilderness, God took the fullness of the gospel and the Melchizedek priesthood away from them, but left the lesser priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, in their midst. The law of carnal commandments and performances functioned under this priesthood, and with the law of Moses constituted a training program to prepare immature and rebellious Israel for the fullness of the gospel. To that I would just add, as I have at other times, that this uh, law of Moses in its purity at this time, was far more than what we generally consider to be, because we conflate it with the Pharisees of the time of the Savior and the way that they lived the Law of Moses. But when we read the Book of Mormon, and we see just how Christ-centered Jacob's theology is and Nephi's, we can see that when the Law of Moses was lived in its purity, it did indeed contain the elements that we are so familiar with of, as Nephi put it, the doctrine of Christ. Now, to continue with Robinson and Garrett, the Aaronic priesthood, however, cannot administer the fullness. Again, remember, they're saying that the people of Moses were preparing for the fullness of the gospel, but the Aaronic priesthood can't administer that. As a lesser or preparatory priesthood, it is limited in its authority and prerogatives. The last man to hold the keys of the Aaronic priesthood anciently was John the Baptist. Because the major function of the Aaronic priesthood is to prepare Israel for receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, it is entirely fitting that John should prepare the way for Christ, who holds the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. Thus, John goes before the Savior and prepares the way for him, the preparatory priesthood preceding the higher priesthood. John prepared the way for the Savior in his mortal ministry, in his ministry to the spirits in the post-mortal spirit world, and in the restoration of the gospel in the latter days before Jesus' second coming. It's in this sense, I would just add, that John the Baptist can be referred to accurately as an Elias. About five weeks into their translation of the Book of Mormon, on the 15th of May of 1829, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery retired to the woods on the banks of the Susquehanna River, near Joseph's farm in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and inquired of the Lord concerning baptism and the remission of sins, which had been mentioned in the material they were then translating 
which was 3 Nephi chapter 11, says Robinson and Garrett, uh, concurring then with Harper. As they prayed, John the Baptist appeared and informed them that he had been sent to them under the direction of the apostles Peter, James, and John. Remember how we read earlier that uh, this uh, holder of the lesser priesthood needed to be directed by those holding the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. The Baptist laid his hands upon the heads of Joseph and Oliver and conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood, using the words that now constitute Doctrine and Covenants section 13. John also gave Joseph and Oliver some instruction on the nature of the Aaronic priesthood, including the fact that it did not have the power of bestowing the gift of the Holy Ghost. He then instructed Joseph and Oliver to baptize one another and to ordain each other to the Aaronic priesthood. Following this event, Joseph and Oliver had both the right to function as priests themselves and the keys or power of presidency in the Aaronic priesthood. These keys gave Joseph and Oliver the right of administration or control, the right to ordain others, and also the right to direct how and when those others would be allowed to use their priesthood. There are a couple more things I'd like to read uh, before we move into section 13, the text of section 13, and uh, all of the commentary that comes with that. The first is this, and this can be found in History of the Church, Volume 1. This is from Joseph Smith himself. He says, On the 5th of April, 1829, Oliver Cowdery came to my house, until which time I had never seen him. Two days after the arrival of Mr. Cowdery, being the 7th of April, I commenced to translate the Book of Mormon, and he began to write for me. We still continued the work of translation, when in the ensuing month of May, 1829, We on a certain day went into the woods to pray and inquire of the Lord respecting baptism for the remission of sins that we found mentioned in the translation of the plates. While we were thus employed, praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, and having laid his hands upon us, he ordained us, saying, and then uh, section 13 is quoted. He said this Aaronic priesthood had not the power of laying on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost but that this should be conferred upon us hereafter. And he commanded us to go and be baptized, and gave us instructions that I should baptize Oliver Cowdery, and afterwards that he should baptize me. Accordingly, we went and were baptized. I baptized him first, and afterwards he baptized me, after which I laid my hands upon his head and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood, and afterwards he laid his hands on me and ordained me to the same priesthood, for so we were commanded." The messenger who visited us on this occasion, and conferred this priesthood upon us, said that his name was John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood he said would in due time be conferred upon us, and that I should be called the first elder of the church, and Oliver Cowdery the second. It was on the 15th day of May of 1829 that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger and baptized. Immediately on our coming up out of the water, after we had been baptized, we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Heavenly Father. No sooner had I baptized Oliver Cowdery than the Holy Ghost fell upon us and he stood up and prophesied concerning the rise of this church and many other things connected with the church and this generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. Here now is a short essay from Church History Topics called Restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. In a series of letters published in 1834, 
Oliver Cowdery recorded the earliest detailed account of the appearance of John the Baptist to Cowdery and Joseph Smith in 1829 in Harmony, Pennsylvania. According to Cowdery, John the Baptist's visit was spurred by the translation of a passage in 3 Nephi that described Jesus Christ conferring authority to baptize on his ancient disciples. The two men wondered whether baptisms over the centuries had been performed by proper authority. Seeking answers to these questions, they withdrew to a secluded place near Joseph's home to ask God. The voice of the Redeemer spake to us, Cowdery remembered, and an angel came down clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked-for message. The two men testified that they knelt before the angel who then laid his hands upon us and said, quote, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, unquote. Though they now had the authority to baptize each other by water, the angel declared that this priesthood did not authorize them to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. The angel assured them the power of laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost would come in due time. He identified himself as John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and said he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery stated that this experience occurred on May 15th of 1829. When the vision closed, they went to the nearby Susquehanna River and baptized each other. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's detailed first-hand accounts were written several years after the appearance of John the Baptist, but both published and unpublished sources written closer to the event itself corroborate their memory. For example, a non-Mormon newspaper reported Cowdery's claim of receiving a commission from angelic visitors just months before the publication of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith later explained that at first he and Cowdery were reticent to share the details of their experience owing to a spirit of persecution in the area. Cowdery's 1834 account came about as part of Joseph's early efforts to record and publish a complete history of the church. In his first written history, produced in Ohio in 1832, Joseph promised to narrate significant early events, including the reception of the holy priesthood by the ministering of angels. The publication effort was delayed initially when a mob destroyed the church press in Independence, Missouri in 1833, and the history itself underwent several revisions and compilations during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Under Joseph's direction, clerks later merged Cowdery's account with additional information provided by Joseph in what today appears in section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Pearl of Great Price in Joseph Smith History, verses 68 through 72. And those read very similar to that passage that I just read from History of the Church. Though the phrase Aaronic Priesthood did not appear in Joseph Smith's revelations until 1834, the concept of a lesser priesthood relative to a greater or high priesthood was referenced in both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith's revision of Exodus, part of his inspired translation of the Bible in the summer of 1832, noted a division between greater and lesser priesthoods. A revelation received by Joseph the following September clarified that the lesser priesthood which was given to Aaron and his seed pertained to the preparatory gospel, which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism, and the remission of sins and the law of carnal commandments. When Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery first organized the church in early 1830, they divided responsibilities among several offices, patterned after references in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. These offices were similar to those in other churches of the time, 
which also commonly structured their congregations after New Testament patterns and featured officers such as deacons, teachers, priests, elders, and bishops. At first, these offices in the newly organized church were not associated with the Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthoods. Over time, additional revelations instructed Joseph Smith on how to align church organization with priesthood authority, and by 1835, offices and duties were more thoroughly organized under the purview of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. So that's a very interesting example, I think, of how the restoration of the church is ongoing even today and uh, was ongoing so early on that there was refining to be done and that Joseph was learning uh, line upon line and precept upon precept. Well, let's move now to the text of section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is one verse long, and I'd first like to read the verse in its entirety and then offer quite a lot of commentary for this verse. And so we'll then drill down to a more granular level in our reading of the verse. And I'll read a few words and then associated commentary, then a few more words with its associated commentary. So the keys and the powers of the Aaronic priesthood are set forth in this verse. And it reads as follows. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance, and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So there's much to discuss here. We can see, first of all, that this is the language of an ordinance. And we know that in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. So that was certainly true on this occasion. John also references the idea that he's bringing it back to the earth because it was taken from the earth, but that it will not be taken from the earth again until this curious event that we'll read more about in just a few minutes involving the sons of Levi. So let's go back now to a more granular reading of this. Upon you, my fellow servants. Uh, Robinson and Garrett say, From the greatest to the least in the kingdom of God, and from the time of Adam to the present, all those who labor for the gospel are fellow servants of Christ. Across the centuries and around the globe, we are all companions, partners, and friends in the service of God. Well, there's quite a distinction between this glorious resurrected being that is descending upon Joseph and Oliver on this occasion. Uh, there's a, a noticeable difference, I'm sure, in glory and in light. Yet, John the Baptist graciously refers to Joseph and Oliver as his fellow servants. Then he invokes the name of the Lord by saying, in the name of Messiah. And Robertson and Garrett say that John here uses the anglicized form of the Hebrew title Messiah, which is equivalent to the more familiar Greek from Christos, both of which mean anointed one or Christ. So anointed one, Christ, and Messiah are all synonymous in this sense. Might just pause there for a moment and think about the phrase that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ. Today, when we think of that phrase, Jesus is the Christ, or we think of Jesus the Christ, it, it can sound redundant to us because in our modern world, we expect someone to have a surname. And so we tend to think of Jesus as his first name and perhaps think of Christ as his surname. And, and we move on without thinking about this any more deeply. 
But to say that Jesus is the Christ, especially in the context of the Jews who have been looking forward to a Messiah for so long, to say that actually Jesus of Nazareth, this obscure person who lived far away from the sophisticated corridors of Jerusalem and Judea, that he actually was the Messiah that they had been looking for for so long. Uh, That is what is meant by the phrase, Jesus is the Christ. The Jews are looking for the Christ, but that's the the Greek term, so I don't think they they use that, but the, the term Messiah, they are looking for the Messiah. So a very interesting thing to think about, I think. So John is acting under the authority of the Messiah here. Then he says, I confer, which is the verbiage we still use today, uh, the priesthood of Aaron. So let's talk about the priesthood of Aaron for just a moment. First of all, Robinson and Garrett say that the priesthood given to Joseph and Oliver at this time was the same priesthood given anciently to Aaron and his descendants. Susan Black asks, what is the difference between the Aaronic and the Levitical priesthoods? Even though the Aaronic priesthood was divided into two distinct categories, Aaronic and Levitical, it was one priesthood. Elder James E. Talmadge explained that the Levitical priesthood was an appendage to the priesthood of Aaron, not comprising the highest priestly powers. Anciently, Levites assisted the priests of Aaron with keeping a fire burning on the sacred altar, dressing burnt offerings, slaughtering paschal lambs, receiving sacrificial blood, and sprinkling that blood around the altar. They disposed of meat and other offerings, performed purification ceremonies, and judged cases of leprosy. Daniel Ludlow has provided this in his appendix uh, to his Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants uh, under an entry called Aaronic Priesthood. There is only one priesthood of God, and it has two major divisions, the Melchizedek Priesthood and the Aaronic. Then, as, a, as we've just read, there are In a way, there's two subsets of Aaronic, with Aaronic and Levitical. The Aaronic priesthood is the lesser priesthood, in the sense that the members of this priesthood do not have the same keys or directing power as do those who hold the Melchizedek priesthood. The keys of the Aaronic priesthood pertain to the preparatory gospel of preaching faith, repentance, and baptism of water for the remission of sins. This division of the priesthood receives its name from Aaron, the brother of Moses. Now, Ludlow offers uh, a couple of quotations regarding the Aaronic priesthood, and first this from Joseph Fielding Smith from Church History and Modern Revelation. He says, The Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the preparatory gospel. These keys were conferred upon Aaron and have descended through his posterity from generation to generation until John the Baptist, who held the keys by divine right and through blessing as well as lineage. Had the Church of Jesus Christ been fully organized and properly organized with the Jews in John's day, that is, when he was preaching in the wilderness, instead of the Jews being in a dreadful state of apostasy, John the Baptist would have taken his place by right as the presiding priest of the Aaronic order. But the Jews recognized him not and failed to understand the nature of his authority, even as they failed to comprehend the authority of our Lord. By right of his authority... John laid the foundation for the overthrow of their power and kingdom, which was based on a false foundation. Had they accepted John, then also would they have accepted the Savior. There is perfect order in the kingdom of God, and he recognizes the authority of his servants. It was for this reason John, who acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, came to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and restored the Aaronic priesthood, which John held 
in the dispensation of the meridian of time. He says, After the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and while they were sojourning in the wilderness, Moses received a commandment from the Lord to take Aaron and his sons and ordain them and consecrate them as priests for the people. At that time, the males of the entire tribe of Levi were chosen to be the priests instead of the firstborn of all the tribes, and Aaron and his sons were given the presidency over the priesthood thus conferred. So think of all of uh, Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, and then, of course, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. I I might have missed a couple others, but among those is, is Levi, and it's Levi then who is given stewardship or charge over the priesthood of Aaron. Since that time, it has been known as the priesthood of Aaron, including the Levitical priesthood. The males of the tribe of Levi were to be invested with authority from that time forth in Israel. It should be remembered that the Melchizedek priesthood was withdrawn from the people when Moses was taken away, so that the Aaronic priesthood remained with the carnal law or the law of Moses. Remember, Moses did not go back into Canaan uh, with the children of Israel, but instead he was translated. So when he left, so did the Melchizedek priesthood. So all that remained was the carnal law or the law of Moses until the coming of Jesus Christ. In the calling of Aaron and his sons, the Lord made it known that this presiding authority over this priesthood should be handed down from father to son. This was true also of the Levitical, which is a division of the Aaronic. All who were of the tribe of Levi were entitled to be priests and to officiate in some capacity in this authority. In making the change and choosing the Levites instead of the firstborn of all the tribes, the Lord said, and then President Smith referenced Numbers chapter 3, verses 6, uh, 12 through 13, and 45 through 58. The Lord had promised to make Israel a nation of priests, but because of their rebellion and failure to hearken to his word, in his anger, he took the Melchizedek priesthood away with Moses and left the people subject to the ministrations of the tribe of Levi. The prophets in Israel, however, received special ordination and were from the several tribes. The Levitical priesthood, conferred on the men of the tribe of Levi, was subject to the authority of Aaron and was part of the Aaronic priesthood. It was the duty of the Levites to assist the priests of Aaron. Their duties are stated in the book of Numbers. Again, that's in Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Ludlow then provides a quote from Elder N. Eldon Tanner. This is from a 1976 conference address, an April conference address. He says, uh, we should all realize that there is nothing in the world more powerful than the priesthood of God. However, I fear that too often some seem to take it for granted as a right and not a privilege. Many seem to feel that age should determine when they are entitled to receive the priesthood or advance in it. Let us just stop and think for a moment of the great importance the Lord placed on the Aaronic priesthood when it was restored. John the Baptist, who baptized the Savior, was sent to restore the Aaronic priesthood. Placing his hands upon the heads of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, he said, and then uh, Elder Tanner quoted Doctrine and Covenants 13, We should all realize that great works of righteousness can be and are performed by the Aaronic priesthood. President Wilford Woodruff said, I desire to impress upon you the fact that it does not make any difference whether a man is a priest or an apostle if he magnifies his calling. A priest holds the keys of the ministering of angels. Never in my life as an apostle, as a seventy, or as an elder, have I ever had more of the protection of the Lord than while holding the office of a priest. Now returning to the text of section 13, the next thing that John says to them 
after conferring upon them the priesthood of Aaron, is that it holds the keys, or it says which holds the keys. So let's discuss priesthood keys for just a moment. First, this from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. The restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood occurred when heavenly messengers bestowed authority and keys upon the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. President Joseph F. Smith explained the difference between priesthood authority and priesthood keys. He said the priesthood in general is the authority given to man to act for God. Every man ordained to any degree of the priesthood has the authority delegated to him. But it is necessary that every act performed under this authority shall be done at the proper time and place, in the proper way, and after the proper order. The power of directing these labors constitutes the keys of the priesthood. Susan Black has written, Priesthood keys are the right to administer in the church and kingdom of God. Priesthood leaders hold keys to preside over and direct the work of God on a local and general level. For example, missionaries can baptize investigators only after receiving permission from a presiding priesthood leader who holds the keys, such as a bishop. The keys given to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery by John the Baptist are the same keys once held by Aaron and his descendants. Now finally, regarding keys, Robinson and Garrett write, There is a difference between holding the priesthood and possessing its keys. Keys are the right of administration or control. Priesthood leaders hold the keys and thus preside over and direct the work of others who hold the priesthood, but are not authorized to exercise it independently. For example, an elder may have the authority to perform baptisms, but he may not baptize someone without permission from the bishop, mission president, or other leader who has received the keys for that work. So again, there's a distinction here between uh, the authority to baptize, but then the permission to baptize. It's the keys that grant one uh, permission to baptize. Now as we go back to the text, John will mention three keys that are held by the Aaronic priesthood. The first is the ministering of angels, then of the gospel of repentance, and then of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. So first, regarding the ministering of angels, the student manual says, The Doctrine and Covenants illustrates that angels are the Lord's servants who deliver messages and minister to God's children on earth. We learn from the Book of Mormon that it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief, and all is vain. That's in Moroni chapter 7, verse 37. Angels can minister to men, women, and children. John the Baptist explained to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery that the Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles offered the following insight. What does it mean that the Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins? The meaning is found in the ordinance of baptism and in the sacrament. Baptism is for the remission of sins, and the sacrament is a renewal of the covenants and blessings of baptism. Both should be preceded by repentance. When we keep the covenants made in these ordinances, we are promised that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. The ministering of angels is one of the manifestations of that Spirit. As a young holder of the Aaronic Priesthood, President Oaks continues, I did not think I would see an angel, and I wondered what such appearances had to do with the Aaronic Priesthood. But the ministering of angels can also be unseen. Angelic messages can be delivered by a voice 
or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. Most angelic communications are felt or heard rather than seen. In general, the blessings of spiritual companionship and communication are only available to those who are clean. As I explained earlier through the Aaronic Priesthood, ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, uh, through ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, we are cleansed of our sins and promise that if we keep our covenants, we will always have His Spirit to be with us. I believe that promise not only refers to the Holy Ghost, but also to the ministering of angels, for angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. So it is that those who hold the Aaronic Priesthood open the door for all church members who worthily partake of the sacrament to enjoy the companionship of the Spirit of the Lord and the ministering of angels. I remember when Elder Oaks gave that talk in 1998. It was in October General Conference of 1998. And how it was that he explained that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost and that there is a connection between that concept and the ministering of angels uh, within the context of angels uh, ministering to us in an unseen manner because he differentiates here in this talk between seeing the angel and having an angel minister to you in an unseen manner. And I I remember just how thought-provoking that was. And I realized at that point that um, perhaps when we receive a prompting from the Holy Ghost, that could be initiated by the ministration of an angel. Elder Holland gave a really beautiful recent talk about the ministry of angels, and he uh, talks about different categories of angels and how it's appropriate to think of fellow mortals in many instances as angels as well, and how true that is when we think of Elder Oaks's talk, because fellow mortals can also act under the influence of the Holy Ghost. They can speak to us by the power of the Holy Ghost as well and minister to us in a variety of ways. There was also a talk in the very most recent General Conference that referenced Elder Holland's talk and and, uh, focused specifically on the ministration of fellow mortals as angels. It's such a beautiful talk. It's from Carlos Godoy, and it's called I Believe in Angels. Well worth reading. Robinson and Garrett have written this with respect to the ministry of angels. With the Aaronic Priesthood comes the right to receive the assistance of heavenly messengers, to preach repentance, and to administer baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. This power is referred to elsewhere as the preparatory gospel, because it prepares an individual to receive the fullness of the gospel, membership in the Church of Jesus Christ, and the blessings of the higher priesthood. Now, the second key that is mentioned here by John in the text is the gospel of repentance. We can kind of fixate upon the word repentance in that phrase, or we can fixate upon the word gospel. Uh, But I think uh, what we can take from that is that oftentimes in Scripture, the, the term repentance is the most operative term among all of the principles of the gospel, and so it can represent uh, the entire process of uh, availing ourselves of the atonement of Jesus Christ and linking ourselves to him through covenant. That uh, And this all begins with faith unto repentance and then moves us into the gate of baptism and the receipt of the Holy Ghost. So the, the phrase gospel of repentance implies all of that, or in other words, it implies access to the saving power of Jesus Christ. I, I spoke earlier in this recording about a more thorough definition of Christianity, which goes beyond simply the confession or profession of Christ, and instead actually involves a priesthood-mediated covenant linkage with 
Jesus Christ himself, uh, accessing his saving and healing power. Uh, that's what the gospel of repentance is. And so I believe that's what John is talking about here. Then the third key that he discusses is baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. President Dallin H. Oaks has written, Not one of us has lived without sin since our baptism. Without some provision for further cleansing after our baptism, each of us is lost to things spiritual. We are commanded to repent of our sins and to come to the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and partake of the sacrament in compliance with its covenants. When we renew our baptismal covenants in this way, the Lord renews the cleansing effect of our baptism. In this way, we are made clean and can always have his spirit to be with us. We cannot overstate the importance of the Aaronic priesthood in this. All of these vital steps pertaining to the remission of sins are performed through the saving ordinance of baptism and the renewing ordinance of the sacrament. Both of these ordinances are officiated by holders of the Aaronic priesthood under the direction of the bishopric, who exercise the keys of the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins. Now we come to this curious phrase here where John references the fact that the Aaronic priesthood has been taken from the earth, and that's why he is now uh, bringing it back to Joseph, restoring uh, this priesthood power, authority, and these keys to them. Uh, he's, he's saying this, and then he's referencing a future time when it could be taken from the earth again, and in fact will, uh, once the sons of Levi offer an offering of righteousness unto the Lord. So there's lots to unpack with that. Uh, so let's start with this phrase where John says, and this shall never be taken from the earth until. So let's talk about the word until for just a moment. First of all, Robinson and Garrett have written, the wording here does not mean the Aaronic priesthood will be taken from the earth when the sons of Levi finally resume their rightful roles. And I think I kind of intimated that just a second ago, so I have to revise that. It will not be taken from the earth. That's not what John is saying here. It is rather an assurance that the priesthood would remain in place during the entire process of restoring all things. Oliver Cowdery supported this view in his remembrance of John's words. When he said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Uh, Robinson and Garrett also point out that uh, section 128, verse 24, uh, supports this idea. It says, Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand, and who can abide the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Daniel Ludlow has written this. The use of the word until in this prayer of ordination does not mean that the priesthood of Aaron will be taken from the earth once the sons of Levi offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. It is used in a continuing sense, much as in the expression, God be with you until we meet again. So when we use that expression, that's not to say that God will no longer be with us once we meet again. In his recording of this event, Oliver Cowdery used the word that rather than until, but in either case the intent is clear. Following is his descriptive account of his reflections and feelings during the time these revelations and angelic visitations were being received. And this is taken from a letter to William W. Phelps that can be found in the Millennial Star. So again, 
uh, Ludlow is providing this, and this is Oliver Cowdery's own writing on this subject. He says, Near this time of the setting of the sun, Sabbath evening of April 5th of 1829, my natural eyes for the first time beheld this brother, Joseph Smith. He then resided in Harmony, Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. On Monday the 6th, I assisted him in arranging some business of a temporal nature, and on Tuesday the 7th, commenced to write the Book of Mormon. These were days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened by the utmost gratitude of this bosom. Day after day I continued, uninterrupted, to write from his mouth as he translated with the Urim and Thummim, or, as the Nephites would have said, interpreters, the history or record called the Book of Mormon. No man in their sober senses could translate and write the directions given to the Nephites from the mouth of the Savior, of the precise manner in which men should build up his church, and especially when corruption had spread and uncertainty over all forms and systems practiced among men, without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of the heart by being buried in the liquid grave, to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We only waited for the commandment to be given, Arise and be baptized. This was not long desired before it was realized. The Lord, who is rich in mercy and ever willing to answer the consistent prayer of the humble, after we had called upon him in a fervent manner, aside from the abodes of men, condescended to manifest to us his will. On a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake to us, while the veil was parted and the angel of God came down, clothed with glory, and delivered the anxiously looked-for message and the keys of the gospel of repentance. What joy! What wonder! What amazement! While the world was racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty as a general mass, our eyes beheld, our ears heard, as in the blaze of day, yes, more above the glitter of the May sunbeam which shed its brilliancy over the face of nature. Then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened, we gazed, we admired. Twas the voice of an angel from glory. Twas a message from the Most High. And as we heard, we rejoiced, while his love enkindled upon our souls, and we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. Where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled. Doubt had sunk no more to rise, while fiction and deception had fled forever. But, dear brother, again, this is Oliver writing to W.W. Phelps. I, I think earlier I misattributed a section of this to Joseph Smith. But this is Oliver writing a letter to W.W. Phelps. So he says, But, dear brother, think further, think for a moment what joy filled our hearts, and with what surprise we must have bowed, for who would not have bowed upon the knee for such a blessing? When we received under his hand the holy priesthood, as he said, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So then as we come back to the text, uh, John says the sons of Levi. So let's investigate that, first with the help of Daniel Ludlow, and he quotes Charles W. Penrose here, who says, Now as to the sons of Levi, spoken of by John the Baptist in his ordination of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, they are or will be descendants of Levi, holding the priesthood of Aaron, who will make the offerings predicted by the prophets to be presented to the Lord in the latter days in Zion and in Jerusalem. So a lot to think about there. In Zion, men chosen of the Lord for the special work mentioned 
will be persons sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, a phrase taken from Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verses 32 through 34, out of the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. At Jerusalem, they will be Levites by lineal descent, offering the sacrifices that will be required after the restoration spoken of in Zechariah, chapter 14, uh, verses 16 through 21, and many others of the prophets of old concerning the restitution of all things. Robinson and Garrett have written that the sons of Levi refers to literal descendants of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, or Israel. The sons of Levi were designated anciently to hold this priesthood and will bear it again in the restoration of all things in the latter days. Now here is this final phrase by John as we come to the end of this section when he says that the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So what is this offering? that the sons of Levi will offer. Let's read some commentary about that, first from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. It says, In ancient times, God commanded his people to offer up animal sacrifices as part of their worship. The purpose of shedding the blood of an animal was to help people look forward in faith to the time when the blood of Jesus Christ would be shed to atone for their sins. From Moses' time to the death of Jesus Christ, the law of Moses dictated that animal sacrifices and burnt offerings be performed by priests officiating at the tabernacle or temple. These priests were descendants of Levi, who were designated by the Lord to serve in the sanctuary. Thus, the term sons of Levi refers to holders of the priesthood. The scriptures describe a few important ways that church members can make an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. The Book of Mormon teaches us to come unto Christ, and this is out of Omni, chapter 1, verse 26, and offer our whole souls as an offering unto him. Isaiah prophesied that in the last days, those who have been gathered by the Lord shall bring all their brethren for an offering unto the Lord. That's out of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 20, meaning those who are converted are to be brought to the temple. Additionally, the prophet Joseph Smith gave the inspired instruction that Latter-day Saints should offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness and present in his holy temple a book containing the records of our dead. That's out of section 128, verse 24. In regards to animal sacrifice, the prophet Joseph Smith gave the following explanation. It is generally supposed that sacrifice was entirely done away when the great sacrifice, i.e. the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, was offered up, and that there will be no necessity for the ordinance of sacrifice in the future. But those who assert this are certainly not acquainted with the duties, privileges, and authority of the priesthood, or with the prophets. The offering of sacrifice has ever been connected and forms a part of the duties of the priesthood. It began with the priesthood and will be continued until after the coming of Christ from generation to generation. These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. This ever did and ever will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest. Else how can the restitution of all things spoken of by the holy prophets be brought to pass? It is not to be understood that the law of Moses will be established again with all its rites and variety of ceremonies. This has never been spoken of by the prophets. But those things which existed prior to Moses' day, namely sacrifice, will be continued. President Joseph Fielding Smith provided further clarification about animal sacrifice in the last days. 
He said the sacrifice of animals will be done to complete the restoration when the temple spoken of is built at the beginning of the millennium, or in the restoration, blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration in this dispensation. Afterwards, sacrifice will be of some other character. I'll now read an entry from Daniel Ludlow's Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants. There will be some repetition here as I do this, but it will also shed additional light. He gives a very comprehensive answer as, as, as to the meaning of this final phrase in section 13 with respect to the offering that is rendered by the sons of Levi. He writes, Several explanations have been given concerning the nature of the offering that is to be offered in righteousness again by the sons of Levi. Over thirteen years after this ordination by John the Baptist, Joseph Smith wrote an epistle dated in September 6th of 1842, in which he mentioned that the Lord would purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Uh, And we can see that, as we've read at other times in verse 24 of section 128. The prophet then pled with the saints, Let us therefore as a church and a people, and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and let us present in his holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. The question often arises, what will be the nature of the offering that will be made by the sons of Levi? While nothing has been given by Revelation definitely stating what it will be, yet the implication in all the scriptures is that it will be just what they did before in ancient Israel. The prophet Joseph Smith has said, quote, It is generally supposed that sacrifice was entirely done away when the great sacrifice was offered up, and that there will be no necessity for the ordinance of sacrifice in the future. But those who assert this are certainly not acquainted with the duties, privileges, and authority of the priesthood, or with the prophets. These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord is built and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, In the restoration of all things, these ancient practices which were given in the beginning, not the carnal law, and which had a bearing on the coming of Jesus Christ, will be restored. That sacrifice by blood should continue to be necessary forever, we need not suppose to be the case. Joseph Fielding Smith has written on another occasion, provided here again by Daniel Ludlow, What kind of offering will the sons of Levi make to fulfill the words of Malachi and John? Logically, such a sacrifice as they were authorized to make in the days of their former ministry when they were first called. Will such a sacrifice be offered in the temple? Evidently not in any temple as they are constructed for work of salvation and exaltation today. It should be remembered that the great temple, which is yet to be built in the city Zion, will not be one edifice, but twelve. Some of these temples will be for the lesser priesthood. Restoration of blood sacrifices. We are living in the dispensation of the fullness of times into which all things are to be gathered, and all things are to be restored since the beginning. Even this earth is to be restored to the condition which prevailed before Adam's transgression. Now, in the nature of things, the law of sacrifice will have to be restored, for all things which were decreed by the Lord would not be restored. It will be necessary, therefore, for the sons of Levi, who offered the blood sacrifices anciently in Israel, to offer such a sacrifice again, to round out and complete this ordinance in this dispensation. 
Sacrifice by the shedding of blood was instituted in the days of Adam, and of necessity will have to be restored. The sacrifice of animals will be done to complete the restoration when the temple spoken of is built. At the beginning of the millennium, or in the restoration, blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration in this dispensation. Afterwards, sacrifice will be of some other character. Robinson and Garrett have summarized Joseph Fielding Smith's writings by saying that he suggested that this will be only a temporary resumption of animal sacrifice for the purpose of demonstrating the restoration of all things. So I think that's a very helpful comment. To end this body of commentary on section 13, I'd like to offer this from Daniel Ludlow, where he summarizes all that uh, we learn from the visit of John the Baptist, and he lists four things. So he says, from the visit of John the Baptist, we learn these great truths. One, that one must be ordained to the necessary priesthood by one having authority before he can administer the ordinances of the gospel. Two, that the Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels, the gospel of repentance, and baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Three, that this priesthood shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. And now we have more insight into the the meaning of the word until there. And four, that while the Aaronic priesthood is divine authority from God, its administration is limited. It had not the power of laying on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, that in conferring this priesthood upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, John the Baptist acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood, which should thereafter be conferred upon them. And as Ludlow points out, that final and fourth point is something that is elucidated upon uh, by Legrand Richards in his book, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. Well, this completes this very detailed look at section 13, uh, both the historical context of uh, this section and, of course, of its teachings. Now, with respect to the historical commentary, we'll uh, next move into Joseph Smith history, again, verses 65, 66 through 75, and that will give us far more context still for what we have just explored in section 13. Uh, So we have that to look forward to, as well as uh, a great deal more. So, for now, this brings us to the end of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 13. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive, the Doctrine and Covenants edition. If this podcast has benefited you, please continue to share it with your family and friends. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me to prepare for this episode. They include Leon G. Otten and Max C. Caldwell's two-volume work called Sacred Truths of the Doctrine and Covenants, Stephen C. Harper's Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine and Covenants Student Manual, which is used for Religion 324 and 325 by the Church Educational System, Stephen E. Robinson and H. Dean Garrett's A Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants plays a prominent role in this podcast. Other valuable commentary has come from Susan Easton Black in her book 400 Questions and Answers about the Doctrine and Covenants. I also want to acknowledge the book by Daniel Ludlow called A Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And finally, 
Valuable additional historical views have been offered from the book Saints, the Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, and from a book that is made available in the Church's Gospel Library called Joseph Smith's Revelations, a Doctrine and Covenant Study Companion from the Joseph Smith Papers. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as from time to time do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, and this year in particular in the Doctrine and Covenants, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, even the Lord Jesus Christ. I offer my personal witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch. You can find me at barryhillam.com. And thank you for listening.